0: Revelation 21, Matt's going to be preaching through the entire passage, but I'm just reading verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband.
1: All right, you may be seated. I wanna invite you to pray with me as we do every Sunday coming before our God just before we dive into the passage of scripture we read to come before him and recognize to whom we are speaking and invite his blessing and his presence on us this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, what a joy to come before you as your people and to be able to call you Father. A privilege we have to gather every Sunday and to address you sort of together uh, corporately as your people, uh, to address you on behalf of things that matter to you, that you tell us to pray for, uh, our nation and our community, the world around us, uh, your work in other churches and your work in our church here. Father, we want to pray for our community right now this morning. Uh, And the the marriages and families in it, Uh, the privilege we've already had this morning to look at uh, some of the families and the young people in our own congregation and just seeing them reminds us that we are in a community surrounded literally by thousands of such families. And if all of the urban planners are right, within the next several years, many more thousands within just a few miles of this church property will be coming into this area. And Father, I pray that this community would be a healthy and safe place for families to thrive and to grow. We pray for marriages that struggle in our community. We pray that through our church and churches like ours, many people would find the hope of the gospel to strengthen marriages, to find the resources to maintain a marriage relationship and parenting relationships, resources that are beyond our own wisdom and ability to just figure out on our own. The family matters to you. It reflects some of who you are and how you relate to your people. And you designed our marriages and our families. And so we pray, Father God, for your help in this community to see marriages and families strong and that they would point to the reality of your love for us. God, as we think of the larger world around us uh, and continuing our prayers for nations where uh, violence is high and persecutions against Christians are strong, we want to pray this morning for the nation of Syria a country we hear a lot about, uh, usually for very bad reasons, in our own news cycles. Father, we where Christians still exist in Syria, and they are there, heavily outnumbered though they are, uh, many of them have fled the parts of that nation that are, are currently under the control of ISIS because the persecution there has been so severe. And we pray for those who are trying to get out of there or who are trapped in that area, that you would protect them, that you would preserve their life. And even those who have gotten out of that area, Father, As they continue to worship you, Syria is a very difficult place to do so as their civil war that has been brewing in that country for many years becomes increasingly militant and increasingly Islamic as violent Islam drives the opposition against the government. Neither side in that conflict have any uh, interest in protecting the, the life and the liberty of Christians and the spread of the gospel. And so, Father, we want to pray for those Christians who are still in Syria, seeking places in some of the major cities to continue to live out their lives, knowing most of the church buildings have been destroyed and gathering together is difficult, but we pray that you would bless them and that you would protect them and that you would give them, even this morning on this Lord's Day, an incredible deep perspective and joy in your presence to keep going and to keep making the gospel clear. Because so many people in a place like Syria, so many people who were raised under Islam and were never even given an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ would indeed embrace you as their Lord and Savior if they simply heard the truth. So we pray for your people and your gospel message in that country. And and God, there are many Syrian refugees even here in our own community, and we pray for them we thank you that they are here. We pray that they would find not only refuge from the war in their country, but that they would be exposed to the truths of scripture and understand the God who made them and who died for their sins and who loved them. And we pray that we would see millions of Syrian men and women the world over embrace the gospel and find eternal life. God, I thank you for the partnership that we have with so many other churches in our community. Uh, I want to pray this morning for uh, a new church plant in the Selwood area called Citizen Church with Pastor Clint. I pray that as they gather this morning, right now, actually this very hour, that you would bless that small church community, making them effective in evangelism as they seek to reach out to their neighbors and many people who are uninterested in religion. We pray that you would give them a very unique sensitivity and a heartfelt grace and compassion that would build bridges and that you would open up the hearts and minds of people to hear the gospel through the members of that church. pray particularly as they partner with other churches in, in the Selwood community to try to start a uh, gathering for teenagers to meet together. Uh, we pray, Father God, that all five of the churches involved in that project, that you would bless it, that you would bring them together, and you'd create a refuge for these young men and women to gather together and celebrate with their peers who you are and learn more about you. God, there's so much to pray about in this world. I just I come back to us as a church, and we invite your, your presence here with us. Not that you're not physically here or, or literally here. We invite your presence in that we want to experience you in a powerful way. I pray that you would make us, even as we turn our attention to the book of Revelation and its final culminating visions of life in a new heavens and a new earth, that you would make us a people of Perspective. God, that the members of our church would be people who live this light in light of the next, that all of the the joys and the pains and the struggles that we experience, we would see in the context of what you are doing and what you are uh, bringing us to. And I pray that even this morning, you would anchor weary hearts in a refreshing hope that eternal life is yet to come and that you would meet those of us who are largely content and dissatisfy us with how little this world has to offer. God, would you comfort the afflicted this morning and afflict the comfortable as we look to your word to see the great hope that you have offered us. Make us an eternally minded people. Help us to see not only these great truths that you are unpacking for us in the Bible, but see how they shape our lives today, that we would be an eternally minded people. We pray this for our good and for your glory in this church, in Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, please, and turn them to Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21, we're in the beginning of the end of the book of Revelation, two chapters that anchor not only this book, but actually the entire Bible, and we're going to look at both of those points this morning. As we look at Revelation chapter 21, we're going to finish our entire series through the book of Revelation next week as we look at chapter 22 and wrap it up. Revelation chapter 21 is one of the better known chapters, and for good reason. This is the good news. You've made it this far, you deserve a payoff. Because let's face it, to get through uh, 20 previous chapters of Revelation, you've seen a lot of judgment, you've seen a lot of blood, you've seen a lot of sobering finality. And and we've talked repeatedly throughout this book about how, in context, that's ultimately a good thing. God is helping people who are suffering in a sinful world. He's answering the question, where is God in all of this? Why does he let this continue? And in so many ways, he has said, I'm letting this continue in grace that people would repent. But there is coming a day when I will take care of all evil. And so that's, it's ultimately a good message, but it's still a heavy and a sobering message. And what a joy to come to the end and see now an extended look at the eternal payoff The book of Revelation has given us little glimpses in in short segments, short visions from the Apostle John, who was the one who originally wrote this down at the end of the first century A.D. Short glimpses and visions of God's people celebrating for eternity in heaven. But finally, as we arrive at these last two chapters, we get a lengthy, extended vision of what life in a new heavens and a new earth will be like. It is the joyous anchor, the finality of everything that this book has been saying. Everything, ultimately, that the Bible has been saying and everything that life has to offer us. With that in mind, let me read more of the chapter. We just heard It uh, the introduction, the main portion of this chapter stated. I want to pick up the narrative in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 21. The first portion that Aaron read earlier are many clear and direct, unambiguous statements about life in the new heavens. And the new earth, or what we call heaven. What we're about to see then is a series of, once again, vivid imagery, symbolic pictures, all of which are deeply rooted in the Old Testament, that flesh out and engage the imagination as to what those statements are going to be like. Let me read through these, and then we're going to back up and seek to understand them, as well as how they apply to our lives today, starting in verse uh, 9 of Revelation chapter 21. And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city with its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. It goes on and it lists 12 precious stones, the twelve gates made of twelve pearls, verse 21, each gate made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure as gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They shall bring their glory uh, into it in the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word for us. Quite a vivid, symbolic image. Some of those images, I'm betting, don't mean much to us. But they mean a lot, and would have meant a lot to first century Christians, rooted deeply as they are in the Old Testament. There's so much imagery here, we certainly don't have time to comment on every single little detail, because there's just too many of them. So here's what we're going to do. we want to approach this and try to get our heads around what the Bible is driving at here by looking at sort of two categories. John the Apostle is describing in this vision what life in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like in two things. He describes it in terms of what's not there, what's absent, and then he describes it in terms of what is there, what's present. And so we're going to look at this chapter under those two headings, what is not there, and what is there? And the process will connect this with the Bible's story, and ultimately see what difference is this supposed to make in a modern twenty-first century American Christian's life. Conclude with some thoughts there. So, with that, let's dive in. What is not there? Fortunately, this chapter is really though uh, is full of, of symbolic imagery, as is almost everything in the Book of Revelation. This chapter is not difficult to interpret. Those first several verses we mentioned lay out what's being said in very clear, explicit, non-symbolic terms. He just states what's happening, and then we get all the symbolic imagery that sort of adds pictures to it. What is not there is clearly stated in verse 4. He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What's not there? Pretty much everything bad that we know of this life. Pain, sickness, mourning, crying, ultimately death itself and separation. All of that is conspicuously absent in this vision of eternal heaven. Now, as the chapter moves on from verse 9 to the end, there's a couple of key elements of all of this imagery that make this point in very vivid terms, cast in terms uh, of the Old Testament and biblical narrative. Um, Just one quick comment. Remember, again, the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a type of writing that doesn't exist anymore in the world today, but it was pretty popular for a few hundred years, right around the time the Bible was written. So there are certain... um, rules, if you will. There are certain standards of apocalyptic uh, writing, one of which is this heavy use of highly symbolic imagery. Uh, A a prophet will receive visions from God, and he explains the visions, and the visions are not so much um, raw, unedited video. Like, God's not playing a videotape of heaven for John and saying this is exactly what it's going to look like and then John is just writing it down, kind of a, a forensic analysis. This is just the details of what I saw and that's exactly what it's going to be like. These are symbolic images that point to real prophetic realities. The imagery is designed to not just inform the mind, but engage the imagination to fill the heart and have an impact on what's being communicated. So it informs not only the mind, but it shapes the emotions and drives the imagination. So once again, we've seen that over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. Uh, uh, Churches are not actually candlesticks, even though that's how they're depicted uh, early on in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus is not a sheep. Even though he is repeatedly called the Lamb, that, that, that symbolizes him as sacrificial, uh, the sacrificial, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Uh, nor does he literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. He doesn't have a broad sword instead of a tongue, even though he is seen that way a couple of different times in this book. And, and the Roman Empire of the first century is not literally a seven headed reptilian sea monster, but it is depicted that way, you see, in the book of Revelation. That's how the symbolic imagery works, and we find the same thing continuing in this chapter here. Notice first that there is no sea. It's one of the first things we're told. Revelation chapter 1, verse uh, 1, I saw new heavens and a new earth. The first heaven earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, this is a statement that has caused no uh, small amount of consternation amongst Christians for many, many years. Because so, wait a minute, there's, there's not going to be like an ocean? God's going to remake the world and it's going to be perfect, but the ocean's gone? What if I like the ocean? I love going to the coast and walking on the beach and looking at the waves, you know, just crash onto the the seashore and feeling the sand in between my toes. I'm not going to get to do that in heaven? Bummer. You can't go snorkeling in pristine waters and see incredible fish. My family had the joy uh, last year of, of traveling to Maui with my dad. We spend some time snorkeling out there. You're looking at these coral formations and these fish, the likes of which you just never see. And you're just out there swimming with them. It's incredible. If you guys have had that experience, you know what I mean. My daughter and I at one point found a sea turtle. We're like, yes, mission accomplished. We stalked it for like ten minutes. I kept telling her, don't get too close because these things are slow on the land, but they are fast in the water. If we freak it out, he's gonna take off. We're never gonna see him again. So we're like, we're like police officers. We're casing him out. You know. We're like 30 or 40 feet behind him and just following him. This is a blast. This is beautiful. I can't do that in heaven? You see, when we think of the sea, that immediately conjures up certain images for us based on our culture, based on our personal experiences. Well, it would have conjured up certain images for the original readers of the book of Revelation too, but it wasn't snorkeling with sea turtles in Hawaii. That's not the first thing they would have thought of when they thought of the sea. Uh, Bible scholar Don Carson points out that uh, historically the Jewish people were not a seafaring people, even though they had a long coastline in, in the... Um Historical lands of, of Israel, right up uh, on the eastern uh, edge of the Mediterranean Sea. But the, the Jews were not people that built flotillas of boats and went out and did lots of trading. Uh, they traded with other nations that were seafaring peoples. They were not a seafaring people. In the Jewish mindset of the first century, the sea represented things like chaos, it's always in motion. Ever been out on a boat and thought, like, I can't wait till I get back to real land? And you finally put your feet on real land again, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm finally going to not be sick. If you've had an experience like that, you're probably a little closer to the images that would have been conjured up here. The sea was always in motion. It was a place of chaos. It was a place of insecurity. You're always safer on solid ground. Nobody drowns walking through the field, right? And ultimately, the sea was a place where people died, Uh, People go down in storms, and they're never seen again. You can't even bury them. They're just gone. They're swallowed up by the cold, black depths. Those were the images of the sea in the the first-century Jewish mind. Also, recall that back in chapter 4, the very beginning of Revelation, I know it was a while ago now, but this book opened with a vision that the Apostle John had of heaven, and God was depicted sitting on a throne, and if you recall, there was something in between John, who was seeing the vision, and the throne. You remember what it was? It was the sea. (laughs) And it wasn't just a placid uh, tranquil sea. We talked about this back then. It was a turbulent sea. It was a massive storm. It was roiling. It was, the water's boiling. There's thunder and lightning coming from the throne of God, and the light of, of the lightning and the flashes of light are, are just glinting off the waves. It's this picture of being in the midst of a tempestuous storm, and that's what's between John and God. John can't get to God because the threatening sea is keeping him away. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, your feet are always on solid ground. That's the idea of the image. You never have to fear some crisis in life pulling the rug out from under you and you're totally at a loss mentally and emotionally with how to cope. You never have to fear that. Your feet are always on solid ground. Life there will have no more chaos, no more insecurity, no more frightening sense of being out of control, nothing to fear. That's, that's the idea here. Notice also toward the end of the chapter, down to verse 25, we're told that there will be no night there. No night. Now, again, I've more than once had the thought myself, and certainly have talked to other people who had the thought that, well, wait a second, um, night's not all bad. If there's no day and no night in heaven, that means there's no sunrises and sunsets. I kind of like sunrises and sunsets. I mean, walking on the beach at sunset is really cool. I can't do either of these things in heaven. That trip we took to Maui, I loved it because, you know, you're on West Coaster and you go to Hawaii and you're like three hours ahead. So I'd wake up at like 7 or 7.30, which is like 4.30 in the morning, so the sun hasn't risen yet. It was great. I'd get up. I'd go throw my shoes on. I'd go out for a run in the morning, and I'd come back, and I had plenty of time to sit down, catch my breath, grab a cup of coffee, and I made it my mission for the few days we were there. Every day, I'm going to sit out on the patio with my cup of coffee and watch the sunrise, and I did. Mission accomplished. It beautiful. It was glorious. Watching night turn back to day, and on the flip side, watching the sun sets. It's fascinating. You go to a place like that and everybody's walking around and right before the sun sets, everybody stops and goes. People are coming out of hotel rooms and looking out windows and for 10 minutes, everybody's transfixed just watching the sunset because it's so beautiful. Is the Bible saying that we're not going to have anything like that in heaven. Heaven's going to be worse. Again, those are the images that come to our mind. Sunrises and sunsets and the beauty of it are not the primary images that the Bible is dealing with here. Uh, Night, particularly in the first century, was a time of insecurity and fear. Uh, In an age when fire and torches were the only light sources after sunset, you can imagine how dark the night was. Uh, I had an experience like this on my first mission trip to East Africa. We're out in the middle of absolute nowhere, totally rural area in this compound where we were staying. And there is inside just a couple of the buildings, the main dining hall, there was like one or two little really dim 25-watt light bulbs that were hooked up to car batteries that they charged with solar panels so that at night when you're eating dinner, you could have just enough light to like fumble around inside the room. But even inside, it was dark. You go outside, pitch black. I mean, totally pitch black. We had flashlights and headlamps, but if you didn't have your light on, I remember several evenings we'd get done with dinner and everybody, our our team, uh, the Kenyan team that was hosting us and the Americans, we would all get around, there might have been a dozen people or so, and we'd just pull up chairs and we'd sit around in a circle and we'd just talk. And then the sun would set. And it would set and it would set. And within an hour, you know, you're in the circle, people are like no more than 15 feet away and you can't even see them anymore. Unless they're really wearing like white clothes, in in which case you saw a faint sort of grayish blur over there. But oftentimes they would just totally vanish into the darkness and they're only 15 feet away from you. Notice how the no night comment in verse 25 is connected to the city gates being perpetually open. Night was a time when nocturnal wild animals roamed around and hunted. Night was a time where uh, brigands and thieves could move around under the cover of darkness. Cities would shut their gates at night. They were surrounded by walls for defensive purposes. They would shut the gates to keep all the baddies out at night. And to be caught outside the gates uh, at night was to, to feel vulnerable. People who arrived at a city too late and the gates were shut, they would huddle up on the wall and wait till morning and hope that nothing came along to munch them. It was, it was a feeling of, 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 of being vulnerable. It was scary. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, you'll never have to fear getting caught outside the city gates because they're never shut and there's no night. You see the image? You see the image? Life will no longer be characterized by fear, insecurity, and vulnerability. And so these images and, and several others in here all kind of support this main idea. What is not there? Pain, sickness, Vulnerability, insecurity, fear, death. All of that is gone. The specific details of what typically would cause a first century person insecurity are fairly different than the things that typically cause 21st century people to feel insecure. But the experience of insecurity is a common human one, is it not? Think about how many of us are concerned about retirement Do you ever think about that? If you're an American, do you ever not? (laughs) Will there be enough money for me to live on when I no longer am able to work anymore? Will Social Security still be solvent by then? (laughs) These questions drive a significant amount of insecurity. It's not just all financial. Those with frail health know how even seemingly small things can set you way back. If you have a health limitation a significant health issue, maybe an accident or a a problem or a disease, you can feel so trapped and limited by your own body. You fear that things that other people, activities other people take for granted and can do without even thinking about it, if you try it, it might set you way back. Depending on your condition, it might even be really harmful or fatal. Makes us feel vulnerable. The world of the Internet, where these kinds of things we carry around with us all the time and they let the entire world onto our screens are my kids safe am i safe for that matter if your relationships are suffering relationships with kids with spouse if you go home to a stranger or worse for those of us that have to go home to an adversary You talk about insecurity. Your feet are never on solid ground. You have no refuge. You see, over and over and over again, the reality in this life is characterized by fear and insecurity, and a lot of that fear is legitimate. It's potentially real. What's missing in the new heavens and the new earth, all of that, it's gone. That's the picture that's being painted. That's what's not there. What is there? We also get a lot of information about what is there. Two things are there that we're going to focus on this morning. God's people are there, and God is there. And it's the combination of those two that is so powerful, God being there with his people. First of all, God's people are there. Again, explicitly stated in verse 2. I saw the new city, uh, the holy city the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we've seen this symbol, the image of a bride before, right? We actually just saw it um, a chapter ago or two chapters ago in in, uh, chapter 19 where everybody gathers for the wedding feast of the Lamb, who is clearly Jesus, who is now wedding his bride. And who is the bride? The people of God. We've seen this over and over again. Well, now, the Apostle John grabs this symbol he's already used, the people of God pictured as a bride, and he now gives it yet another symbolic reference, the, picture, uh, the people of God pictured as the city of God. The city is the people of God. We see this even more explicitly in verse 9. One of the seven angels comes and he says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so what does he show him? He takes him to a high mountain, and he immediately sees what? The city. This is the bride. You see what the text is saying. Now, if you're a little confused by this, that's okay. That's apocalyptic literature. (laughs) The Apostle John is using all these symbolic references and he's tying them together in new and fresh ways. But there's all of these indications that the city of God being pictured here is a way of saying all of God's people are there. Uh, Just briefly, uh, looking at some of the numbers that are used, Uh, verses 12 and 14. The city has uh, gates. And it is said to uh, also have foundations. The twelve gates have the twelve names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on them. By the way, almost everything in this chapter of Revelation is drawn heavily from the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel. If you're at all familiar with that book, especially the last ten or so chapters of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel gets this vision of a a future uh, end times temple. And, and so much of the language of this chapter is modeled on that. In Ezekiel's vision, uh, the new Jerusalem has 12 gates, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west, three on the east, and each one of the 12 is named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's all from the Old Testament. Revelation grabs that imagery and just pulls it forward into chapter 20 and says, yeah, you know what? This is that city that you read about in the Old Testament, except, as is always the case, he also adds something new and different. He says not only does it have 12 gates that had the 12 names of the old covenant people of God. It also has 12 foundations, which has the name of the 12 apostles, which represents the New Testament people of God. Now, that's not a new idea in the Bible. The Apostle Paul taught back in Ephesians chapter 2 that God is building his church together, his people together as a temple of sorts built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is a well-known New Testament image and John combines it with a well-known Old Testament image to say what? The city is the people that God is building together. You also notice uh, so many of the numbers that are used. We've mentioned this before in Revelation, how virtually every number mentioned in this book is a symbol. uh, symbol. Uh, The city is said to be 12,000 stadia long. That was a way that the Romans measured distance back in that day. Um, That's roughly 1,400 miles, for those of you keeping track at home. 1,400 miles long, one wall of the city. 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide. This is a big city. But of course, the actual distance is not really important. What's significant is the number 12,000. We've seen over and over again the symbolic use of numbers, especially sevens and tens and twelves and multiples of those numbers. And so you've got 12 times 1,000. It's a very consistent with the way numbers have been used in revelation 12 again representing the people of god the 12 apostles the 12 tribes of israel and a thousand being a way of just saying fullness and completion this is the full complete people of god that we're talking about here and just in case we needed one more, in verse 17, the walls of the city are said to be measured and they are 144 cubits. Whether that's high or thick, we don't know, and it doesn't really matter because the point is not that we're describing something as it's literally going to physically exist. He's using a symbolic image. A cubit, by the way, was about a foot and a half um, back in that day. So you're talking a little over 200 feet, either high or thick, <laughs> we're the city walls but once again, 144 is 12 times 12, and you've got 12 gates and 12 foundations. Do you see the point of all this? It's weird. We don't normally think or write this way anymore, but it's not that hard to understand what the Bible is doing in a different kind of literary genre than the type we're used to. It's using these symbolic numbers uh, to paint a picture of all the people of God together. Again, John's primary purpose here is not to give us a literal urban plan of the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and the new earth, complete with building blueprints, survey reports, and engineering drawings. That's not the idea. That's a very 21st century American linear way to think about what's being said here. Rather, he's using well-known symbolic numbers to depict the city as the people of God, which is the same as the bride of Christ. It's all the same, and he's bringing it together at the end of the book. All these symbols clash and collide together in a bewildering vision that says, God's people are all there. God's people are all there. Secondly, God himself is there. God himself is there. Once again, we have the clear statement early in the chapter and then the symbolic imagery later. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God such a clear statement like never before not since eden has man been face to face with god but in the new heavens and the new earth that's exactly what's going to happen that's what's being pictured here i mentioned a moment ago that this whole chapter is modeled on uh, the ending visions of the book of ezekiel uh, if you're familiar with that or if you go back and read it what happens in those chapters is the the old testament prophet ezekiel uh pictures Uh, Gog and Magog defeated. We talked about who those guys were last week. Gog was a real person. Magog was the region over which he reigned, and they become sort of symbolic for nations that oppose the people of God. Well, Ezekiel sees Gog and Magog defeated, and then he is transported in his vision to a high mountain where he sees this incredible end times temple complex laid out before him in a vision. Now we go to Revelation 20, and what do we see the Apostle John doing? Gog and Magog are defeated again who we saw last week was John's way of saying that's all the nations of the earth he tells us who that is and then John is transported to a high mountain uh, verse 10 just like Ezekiel was and he sees a vision of the end times temple complex except here's the interesting thing as is always the case John changes it a little bit it's not a temple it's the city which is the people of God. The people of God are the temple of God, which is the dwelling place of God. That's what's being said here. God is with his people. Again, some of the imagery continues to flesh this out. Verse 16, you notice the cubical shape of the city? Which has raised more than one question in most of our minds if you've ever read the book of Revelation. The city lies four square, its length is the same as its width, but then its length and its width and its height are equal. Well, what in the world does that mean? Who has ever seen a real city in the real world whose length and uh, width and height are equal? What's being pictured here? You you start to take this literally and you get some very bizarre images. In fact, if you think of a cube, massive cube descending on the Earth in 21st century television-oriented America, you might get a picture of a Borg invasion. All right, all you Star Trek fans just laughed. The rest of you are going, this church is weird, which is probably true, but we're just going to move on. Okay. Like, is this what John is describing? I mean, you have this like ultimate, these weird, this like alien collective that assimilates people and puts them in these gigantic miles long cubes and and you become a drone as a slave to the will of the collective. It's like horrible, right? This is like a sci-fi zombie kind of thing that they did with the whole Star Trek franchise. And these giant cube descending on the earth is, what is going on here? Again, culture. What what are the images that immediately pop into our mind? Well, I'm pretty sure people in the first century would not have thought of John Luke Picard or the USS Enterprise. (laughs) What would the cube have meant to them? Dr. Carson points out that there's only one cube mentioned in the entire Old Testament, and it's the Holy of Holies. At the center of the tabernacle, or later the temple complex, Everything was laid out. The building is described in exquisite detail. You can read about it multiple places in the Old Testament. Most of it was rectangular in shape, with one exception. The innermost room, which was called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, is a perfect cube. That's the dwelling place of God. That's the place that is so holy because God's presence is there that no man may ever enter it because mankind is too sinful. In the uh, olden days, only the high priest could enter it, and that only once a year, and that only after he went through an elaborate series of rituals to atone for his own sins and those of the people. It was so holy you could not enter it. God's presence was not accessible to man. And yet here's John describing this, Well, we're expecting, a temple on the basis of Ezekiel, but suddenly it becomes not a temple, it becomes the city, which is the bride of Christ, which is the people of God. And it is the most holy place where God's presence dwells. Do you see from the Old Testament how all the symbols come together to paint what is actually a very clear picture and just in case we needed the um, implicit point to be more explicit, he says in verse 22, I saw no temple in the city. I was looking for it. It's almost as if he is saying, I know you readers of Ezekiel are expecting me to eventually get to the temple part of this city. I'm just going to tell you, it was not there. The whole city is the temple. God himself, he says, is the temple. God's presence is in the city, which is the people of God, the bride of Christ. So how do we put all this together? In the Old Testament, the the tabernacle and later the temple, the structures where the Jewish people worshipped were physical buildings that had one ultimate purpose. It was to keep the people, it was to grant access to God, uh, grant the people access to God in a way that kept them at arm's length. Because they were sinful, because God had said clear back in Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai, come up on the mountain and all of you people and let me speak to you face to face and they shrank back in fear and said, we don't want to do that. God says, fine, you are sinful. You're still my people. I'm still going to be faithful to you. I'm going to give you this temple and these sacrifices so that you have a way to interact with me. But the temple is designed to keep you apart from me, separate from me. My presence will dwell in the innermost most holy place and you can't go there. If you do, you will die. And so there's this kind of tension with the temple. On the one hand, it's the gateway to God, as it were, if you'll pardon the phrase. It's a way to access God. But on the other hand, it's designed to keep you at arm's length from God because you're sinful and God is holy. That's the purpose that the temple served. Well, the eternal future here is being depicted symbolically, using images drawn heavily from well-worn and well-known Old Testament passages, as one in which a future in which there is finally no mediating structures between God and his people. There is no more temple. We don't need it anymore because God's people are there and finally God is there. In, In this way, these chapters, chapters 21 and, and 22 of Revelation, are not just ending the book of Revelation. They're actually tying up the entire story of the Bible that began clear back at the beginning in the book of Genesis. There's no temple in this city because the temple is not needed anymore. God is with his people, which means we are, we are back to Eden. Do you see that? The Bible is here describing a reality that has not existed according to the Bible since God first created the world and our first parents who walked with God in Eden and they talked with God and they saw him face to face. They enjoyed the sheer pleasure and satisfaction of God's unfiltered and undiluted presence because they were, for a time, without sin. There was nothing that drove them away from God. And they enjoyed an intimate relationship with him, the one that they were made for, the very same one you and I were made for, and the only relationship that can ultimately satisfy the soul, our relationship with God. That was what they had in Eden. That's what Adam and Eve were made for. That's what we were made for. And that's what was lost, the Bible tells us, when we sinned. And it is that face-to-face experience with God that he is bringing humanity back to. That's the storyline of the entire Bible. That's the point of everything that God is doing in the Bible. And that's what we see depicted here in the ultimate new heavens and new earth, the future. It is a place where God is with his people. You see, our sin originally drove us away from God, who is perfectly holy. That's why we needed this mediating temple structure. His goal from the beginning has been to fix that problem, to reconcile us to himself by dealing with the root problem, which is sin in the human heart. So the tabernacle and temporal uh, structures and the priests that were in there, those were all kind of mediating structures that came between God and man, but they were never the ultimate point. They were never the primary solution. They were temporary. Uh, They were images and symbols of how God was going to have to create reconciliation. Because those animal sacrifices and the temple buildings historically never actually took care of sin, the Bible tells us. It never actually got us closer to God. But they did serve as a model, as it were, or a type, as the scholars like to say a foretaste of the real mediator and the real sacrifice that would deal with our sin and would actually unite us to God. And that is when Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the perfectly righteous life you and I should have lived, but didn't. Died the sinner's death that you and I deserved to die, but we didn't because he died it for us. And in living perfectly righteous for us, he then gives us his righteousness. In dying the sinner's death for us, he takes for us the penalty for our sin. It's a divine exchange. When he died on that cross and rose again from the dead, he actually dealt with sin and enabled us to reconnect with God, to be in his presence. You don't need a temple anymore because according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the temple. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the temple. You don't need a priest anymore because Jesus Christ is our ultimate priest. He is the one who has gone between and dealt with sin. And in the end, we will be with God because we will be living the payoff of the gospel. For those of us who put our faith in Christ, which is offered, God says, to every single person on this planet, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... This chapter is describing the eternal results. Life in the unfiltered and undiluted presence of God. That means fullness of joy, satisfaction, security. It means no more sickness. It means no more mourning. It means no more crying. It means no more pain. We're going to finish our look at the book of Revelation next week. There's one more important image to see in this uh, picture of the new heavens and the new earth that we will save for next Sunday. In the few minutes we have left, I want us to think for a moment practically about the impact that, that God intends these passages to have. Why did he put this in the Bible for us? What does he want us to do with it? The book of Revelation opened by saying, You will be blessed. If you read and take seriously the words of this book. So, if you read and take these words seriously, how is it a blessing to each one of us? Let me suggest at least a couple of things, probably lots of answers to that question. But a couple of things. First of all, we need to speak these truths to ourselves over and over and over and over again. We need to speak these truths to ourselves over and over again. To preach to yourself, as it were, I'm not just wait for me to do it on Sunday. God put these images in the Bible so that his people would read them. He put them in uh, vivid symbolic imagery in part so that it would call to mind the Old Testament, get our eyes up, see the grand narrative of Scripture, and inflame the heart to say, oh, yes, I can't wait. And if you're at that point, you're starting to hit the mark. But here's the problem. If you're anything like me, you can be at that point for a few minutes. Maybe on a Sunday morning, maybe when I'm talking with a friend about this or whatever. But so much of life is just kind of, at at best, kind of a monotonous grind. And and I don't have a whole lot of time or energy to think about the big things. I got pressing needs that are coming at me right now. Uh, My family needs this. My employer needs that. My friends need this. I need that. And that consumes so much of our thinking and so much of our energy. It is uh, very difficult to constantly maintain perspective. In fact, I'm, I'm sort of diplomatically understating that. Let's just be blunt. We can't just do this all the time. It's not normal human nature to just live in a default place of ultimate eternal perspective. The opposite is true. It's more natural to just get focused on what's right in front of me right now. And these passages are designed to add fuel to the fire, as it were, to blow wind in the sails of getting our eyes up and understanding what God is doing. To put life in this sin-cursed world into perspective. But perspective is something that needs constant refreshing. So we need to preach these truths to ourselves over and over again. But you know what, for the very same reason, the other application I would suggest would be that we speak these truths to one another constantly. <laughs> over and over and over again. That's true of friends that we have who aren't even Christians, who struggle with various aspects of life, because everybody does. Is there any hope that the Bible offers to somebody? Yes, it's in the gospel of Christ, and that hope is depicted here. It's also true for friends who are Christians. You know another Christian, you're in a small group together, you're in a Bible study group together, you good friends, you in the same family together, live in the same home. We can get one another's eyes up. And I believe God intends us to do that. That's why He's given us one another many years, I worked with a pastor named Stu Weber. He had lots of uh, stewisms, as I call them. He was good at reducing uh, uh, truths about life into catchy little phrases. Uh, One of his phrases um, is very common. Many people have said it. God has given us three great resources, his word, his spirit, and his people. It's very true. We say that all the time here at Harvest, too. My friend Stu used to say, here's the problem. I can ignore God's word, and I can quench God's spirit, but if they're doing their job, I can't get away from God's people. That's true. (laughs) Sometimes I I don't even have the energy to read my Bible. I don't want to pray. I'm just tuning out the Holy Spirit. But my friends, my family can come alongside and help speak His truth into my life. I need that. And they need it too. What a gift to have someone else help get our eyes up, especially when we're discouraged, in pain, or otherwise find perspective difficult to maintain. The problem, though, is, of course, that that can be a little bit tricky, can't it? And I think we should be honest about that. It can be a little bit tricky to approach somebody that I know is going through a difficult situation and try to get their eyes up a little bit, but I don't want to do it in a way that sounds insensitive. I don't want to come off as preachy in a bad sense of that word. So often we've probably all had experiences where some usually well-intended Christian... Sees another Christian in pain and responds with a comment that was probably well intentioned, but it just comes off as flippant, you know? Man, my life is falling apart here. Well, you know, God works all things for good. I'll pray for you. I don't feel helped. (laughs) You know, um, trust God, it'll work out. God is in control. Yeah, I know, but I'm feeling out of control. You see, sometimes there's kind of one-off, it's like a drive-by truthing, right? <laughs> I'm flying by and, and, and I see the wreckage of your life and gosh, I feel bad about that and I want you to feel better. It's not that I don't care, but I roll down the window and I lob a little truth bomb and hope that it'll help. <laughs> and, and often it really doesn't. And you know what's actually a greater concern to me even than that is that I think most of us know it doesn't and so we're scared of it and so we keep the window rolled up and we don't say anything which is maybe even a greater tragedy it's a shame because god intends us to speak truth into one another's lives to not say anything because we fear saying the wrong thing is not the answer god has called us to disciple one another to be in one another's lives and that means speaking the truths of god to one another so let me just close with a couple of thoughts. There's so many ways that could be unpacked. Let me just end with these to get your mind going on how to do this well. We'll probably pick this up and talk about it some more too. Two things. First of all, ask questions and listen. I've had members of our church sometimes come up to me and say, Hey, look, I know so-and-so. Um, it's, it's, they're part of our church. It's obvious they're going through a hard time. And like I... I, I want to help, I want to encourage them, but I just, I don't know what to say. Is, is somebody talking to them? Just, I want to be sure somebody's doing something for them, but I don't want it to be me because I'm scared. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Okay, then don't say much. Walk toward a person anyway. Most people desperately appreciate it when we do that, by the way. And instead of speaking first, ask questions first. How are you doing? What's going on? What's the latest? Maybe I know you're going through a tough thing, but I don't know all the details, tell me of course when you ask questions you have to be genuinely interested enough to take the time to actually listen Uh, what's going on that's the factual question what's the latest how are you doing personally in that maybe they're like i don't know last week i was doing great but this morning man it just hit me nothing's changed but it's just a hard day what's going on how are you doing a scale of one to ten how do you feel like you're handling things One being, uh, my life is a complete train wreck. Ten, I'm doing awesome. Why'd you pick that number? You see, those are all ways just to, to create space for somebody if they want to, to say, here's what's really going on with me. And to actually listen and connect and care that much with another Christian is a great gift. By the way, that's not a personality thing. It's not like outgoing relational people are good at that and introverts aren't. That's not true. Everybody can love another human being by making the time to ask questions and listen, to ask a lot of questions. Don't rush too quickly to the antidote before hearing them out. That alone will avoid a lot of the the triteness and the truth bombing that we're sometimes afraid of. It's not a drive-by truthing if I stop the car and get out and listen, okay? (laughs) So let's do that for one another. Secondly, when we do hear somebody in a difficult time And we know they need perspective. Maybe they need the perspective of Revelation 21, and they've lost it. Rather than distilling it down to a 30-second sermon and launching it at them, take people to Scripture. Take people to Scripture. Probably the greatest lesson I learned from um, Gary Brashears, who was one of my theology professors when I was a student uh, doing my master's degree over at Western Seminary, um, had to do with talking with people about the Bible, I think I learned some theology from him too. But the greatest lesson was actually this. It was an informal conversation he was having with a bunch of students. And somebody was asking him, you know, when, when, you're, when you're talking with somebody who's going through a hard time, another Christian or whatever, how, how do you do it? And he said simply this. He says, take them to the Bible and have them read their Bible out loud and ask simple interpretive questions. Those four things. Have them read their Bible, out loud, and ask simple interpretive questions. Have them read. That way I'm not preaching them. They got to get into the Bible and read it for themselves. I'm taking them to God's word, not just my word. It's not my convictions that God is in control of this, and so I want to encourage you because I'm confident in God. No, no, I want you to be confident in what God said, not what I said. So have them read. Have them read their Bible. Why? so that they're going to take it home with them. And when they are on their own, maybe they can say, you know what, that was an encouraging comment. I know exactly where that was. I go to my Bible and I know exactly where to find it. Have them read out loud. That one's kind of funny. I've done this with people. They'll want to talk to me, and I say, great, let's go to the Bible, let's read this. They're like, yeah, I'm familiar with that passage. Good, read it. Okay. Um, Excuse me, what? Read it. I am. No, out loud. Oh, you want me to read it to you? You don't know the Bible? go ahead and just read it out loud oh okay sometimes people just dive in and do it other times people are like what are you making I just, hear yourself read the words of god so once i've had them read their bible out loud we just ask simple interpretive questions what do you think that means how does that impact the way you know your situation right now a minute ago you said you were feeling this is anything in this passage address that what do you think that is And sometimes they'll be right, and sometimes they won't be completely right. But the point is, you're getting somebody into the Word of God. And this way, I'm letting God speak, which is far less likely to come across as truth-bombing somebody. But what a gift to have somebody say, I don't even have the energy to read my Bible. Great, let me come alongside. Let's read it for a minute together. It doesn't have to be a big formal thing. You can have a conversation like that in five minutes with somebody over a cup of coffee. But what a gift to be able to speak the truths of God to one another. We're going to pick this up and resume it and land this plane next Sunday. For now, let me pray that God will make of us a people who are not only characterized by eternal perspective, but help one another be the same. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. Let's pray as we get ready to respond to the great truths of God. Father, we thank you for the privilege of getting to know that there is an end Because of the gospel, that is worth it. Whatever it may be, that's your promise. There is an end in store that's worth it. And that is so much greater than anything going on in my life right now. Whether things are going pretty well, whether I'm really struggling. Father, I thank you for the truth that in the end, your people will be there and you will be there. And that means the absence of everything we hate about this life. And we look forward to that day. Father, I pray that you would make of us and help us to make of one another a people who are indeed eternally minded, who live this life in light of the next, who put our hope in the gospel and in what you have done. And I pray that if there's anybody here in this room who has not embraced you as their Lord and Savior, you would draw them to understand where only life can be found. And that is in embracing you as the Lord of the universe and the Savior of our sins by confessing our sins. Draw us to yourself and then make of us a beacon that will draw other people to you as well in our community and in our world. We pray that you do this for your great glory. Amen.